0: Welcome to Live at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear the story of a kid from South Pasadena who at the age of seven attended his very first Dodger game. aisle 44, row F, seat number one. And has had a front row seat to Dodgers history from Tommy Lasorda to Jimmy Wynn to Vin Scully.
1: I asked him, you know, what's the secret to his success? Something along those lines, I didn't want to ask cliche questions. And he quoted Lawrence Olivier. You know, right off the bat, it's like, who quotes Olivier? and he said, have the humility to prepare and the confidence to pull it off.
0: Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. Sharing stories from players, managers and coaches, writers and broadcasters, and even team historians about their lives around baseball. From the sandlots to the big league ballparks. Hi, I'm John Frost and my guest today is Mark Langell. Team Historian for the Los Angeles Dodgers, born on Dodgers opening day in 1965. Thanks, Mark, for sharing about your life at the ballpark.
1: John, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Now, Mark, i got to ask you the question that everyone asks you. I know this is the most often asked question that you get. But (laughs) how does someone become the historian for the Los Angeles
1: Dodgers? Well, John, in my case, it's very easy because anybody that ever saw me try to play youth sports, the answer is, Do not hit the ball in Little League, and you are well on your way. And it's a heck of a plan B. It seemed when I was a little kid, I knew everything about baseball. I had the trading cards, the trivia, and everything like that. But for some reason, the bat and the ball never seemed to come together at the right time. But I always enjoyed the atmosphere. But I knew uh, as a washed-up athlete at age seven, if I was going to be in Major League Baseball, it'd have to be somehow through a book or something else because it wasn't going to be by my playing ability.
0: It's similar to my story, which is I tell people that the curveball made a disc jockey out of me. So, So I know all about that.
1: I couldn't even tell you if it was a curve or a fastball. I realized that any pitcher throwing overhand, it was going to be a long day. Well, there are very few
0: professions, I would think, that when people ask you, what do you do for a living, the response that they get is a big smile. You must have all kinds of people reacting to you
1: that way. Oh, absolutely. People just crack up and they go, that's not a real job. And who am I to argue with them? I can't use the W word as far as work, because what are the odds that you're going to be? You go to your first Dodger game when you're seven years old. You become a sports writer through the invitation of an English teacher. I didn't even ask to be on the school paper. I end up being a journalist. I end up going to the Dodgers in 1994 as a broadcasting and publications assistant. And then suddenly, the O'Malley family is not owning the ball club anymore. And after two ownership changes in 2002, Derek Hall basically said, we don't really know what you're talking about, but you know what you're talking about. Can we call you the team historian and give you every miscellaneous phone call, every footnote, every trivial thing since 1890 and even before that, when they weren't members of the National League? And I just smiled and I said, absolutely.
0: Do you have a favorite Dodgers trivia question?
1: I think as far as the favorite trivia question, that's a very good question. Gosh, usually it's just everything is trivia. It's like a quilt. And so many people call and I want to know what a relative did with a certain box score or everything like that. My favorite trivia question is why is Duke Snyder wearing a batting glove the day before Dodger Stadium opened? Because... There's this sort of mystery. There's a photo of Duke addressing the crowd for a 5,000-person workout to test the lighting and everything before they opened up the ballpark. And Duke is wearing a batting glove. And everyone's like, he never used a batting glove. What happened was he's going to the ceremony, and all of a sudden the tailpipe falls off his car, and he picks it up. Ouch, ouch. That thing is hot. And he burned his fingers, and he does not want Walter Alston to know that he has burned his fingers. And so fortunately, Duke played golf. It was actually a golf glove. And he took that out of his trunk, and he actually hid the injury. And so when you see these file photos of Duke Snyder, uh, he's not wearing a batting glove. He's hiding an injury with a golf glove. So little things like that. That's the fun stuff, like Paul Harvey, rest of the story, uh, where somebody will fill you in on something. That's the fun trivia for me.
0: Well, I know it probably doesn't qualify as trivia, but I know you have a wonderful story about Jimmy Wynn, and wasn't he your favorite player?
1: Jimmy Wynn was my favorite player. You're eight years old. The very first year I follow baseball, then Jimmy Wynn, the toy cannon, comes from Houston to the Dodgers. Jimmy Wynn, this colorful player, and I get to go to a Sunday game, and it's the Dodgers and the Reds. And I haven't heard yet of heartbreak in terms of things going bad. The Mm -hmm. Dodgers get off to a great start. and It looks like they're going to the playoffs and they had a a one-and-a-half-game lead in the last couple weeks of the season, and the Reds won the first two games of the series. Dodgers are up 2-1. to He hits a grand slam, and it's just like that kid with the wide eyes and pride of the Yankees after Lou Gehrig hits a homer. Oh, my gosh. My favorite player hits a grand slam, and I can still close my eyes right now and hear that crowd exploding with just so much emotion. So flash forward 15 years later, and I'm at an old-timer's day luncheon I'm a reporter now. And I said, Jimmy, I was there when you hit that grand slam. Boy, was that exciting. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I never hit a grand slam with the Dodgers. (laughs) And I said, Jimmy, that's the cornerstone of my childhood. And I start to recite everything. Pedro Borbone was the pitcher. You're only up two to one. Garby followed with a home run. You went seven to one and never looked back. And he wasn't trying to fool me. He just said, no, I don't think I did. I don't think I hit a grand slam. And it taught me a great lesson. The next day I gave him the newspaper clipping and gave him every other supporting argument that I had. And he goes, well, what do you know? I guess I did. These guys are in the heat of the moment. I think he was sick that day. He might not even known the bases were loaded. He's just trying to react and, and try to do something good on a hot day in the pennant race. And he's not there chronicling what he's going to do because I'm sure he's trying to think of what he's going to do the next day. And maybe he's battling an injury or anything like that. So I never assume a player is keeping the scrapbook in their head as they go along. We've got like these parallel lives. I let them worry about how to play the game. I don't know how to throw a curve, launch angle, everything like that. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about that. The only thing I would tell a player the advice that I would give, and I tell this to young people uh, and even older players, take as many pictures as you can because you can always go back and look up the stats and everything like that, but you can't go back and Take those photos from the minor league days. Or if you had a teammate or you've got some family visiting in the stands, take those photos because really that's what you're going to miss when it's all over, those photo ops that you didn't take advantage of.
0: Jimmy Wynn was a remarkable player, and one of your other childhood heroes has a big game in his career, and it happened to be against the Dodgers, even though it was in Atlanta, Henry Aaron's 715th home run.
1: Well, you know, I'm told that he hit his 715th home run because I'll tell you, John, I'm all ready to stay home that night. I'm going to watch NBC, and this is a Monday. and This is the first time I'd ever figured out that I wanted to stay home and watch a game. It clicked during the offseason, everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm seven years old, and I'm thinking, I've got to see this. And my mother says, no, you're part of a Little League team. You really should go. And, you know, my mother is such a great person, and I didn't want to upset her or anything. And I thought, all right, well, she had the radio, and then basically I'm stuck in the left field and Hank Aaron's coming up to the plate. And I'm dying a thousand deaths because it's not a one, two, three inning. Some guys get on base, and finally when I trot in, my mother is there in the stands holding up the radio, and all I could hear was cheering. And she said, he just hit it. And I'm like, oh. And I can hear Vinny do his soliloquy as far as everything it meant to Atlanta and Hank Aaron and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So I missed the big moment. Now we flash ahead 30-plus years, and we had a Jackie Robinson night event at Dodger Stadium. And they said, can you escort somebody onto the field? And I said, well, I'd be happy to. And later, a couple days later, they said, it's going to be Hank Aaron. Wow. And I smiled because I knew what I was going to do. And in that position, you're not there for photos or autographs. But we did have a moment together all alone in the elevator. And it's small talk time. Mm. And I just said, I missed seven fifteen. My mother made me go to my Little League game. They would have had a better chance if they had only eight on the field. And he said, well, your mother was right. You know, you were part of a team. That's what Little League is all about. (laughs) Finally, I had this moment where I can tell my mother, I finally meet Hank Aaron and I tell the story and, and I thought she's going to feel good that Hank Aaron supported her. And instead she threw me for a loop. She said, how did I know you were going to tell me to Hank Aaron?
0: So tell me about where you were in 1988 when Kirk Gibson hit his classic home run.
1: Well, Kirk Gibson, game one, I am still working at Pasadena Star News. I am the backup reporter, and I am not assigned to that ball game that day. And so I'm taking the swimming score, and the atmosphere in a newsroom, whether it's sports or anything, it really takes a lot for these grizzled news Mm -hmm. veterans to get out of their chair for anything. (laughs) You know, I think the only time you can see them leap out of their chair is somebody brings in a pizza and says, three magic words, who wants them? Other than that, <laughs> you're not going to get people to move. And Kirk Gibson hit the home run. And there was a little confusion because the sound was accuracy is going to close it out. And it's a newsroom. So you've got things going on. And all of a sudden, you sort of see sort of like the camera shaking and this over television. Suddenly, everybody just rushes over there. And it's the only time I'd ever seen these adults, just they looked like little kids, like they couldn't believe it. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. And then, of course, there was a the confusion as far as what happened. Nobody knew the story yet about Gibson hitting the ball off the tee and Mitch Poole, the clubhouse attendant, putting the balls on the tee and, and Kirk Gibson trying to give it a shot. Nobody thought that he was going to play. So when he limped up in the ninth inning, you know, no one's expecting anything. And then suddenly the miracle happens. So that was an incredible moment. And the important thing is, is when you see it, you see it live, you'll never forget where you were. And that's the most important thing. Wherever I've seen the historical sporting event, I can still remember May of 79 when Chris Byer hit bounces a ball over Ron Faye's head and spoils the no-hitter. I can remember June the 4th, 1990, I'm still a reporter, and Ramon Martinez has 18 strikeouts against the Braves. But the thing is, he still had four outs to go when he had his 18 strikeouts. So I remember that feeling of, oh, my gosh, we might see 22 strikeouts. We may see something that's never happened before. And that's in that moment where all of a sudden it's all coming down, you know, whether it's uh, the last drive in a Rose Bowl or anything like that, the Lakers and Celtics, as far as uh, world peace in this three pointer, you see something live that's in the moment. You'll have forever to replay it. Uh, But that's really what I love about sports in terms of that unscripted moment. We can all argue and say what's going to happen. And then when it finally comes down to it, nobody knows what's going to happen. If you're old enough to remember 1980 and USA, Russia, hockey, the third period, you have no idea what's going to happen. But if you saw it live, you never forgot it.
0: You grew up in Los Angeles and Pasadena. And so you grew up a Dodger fan. Do you have a favorite Vin Scully story?
1: Well, I think when I interviewed Vin Scully for for the very first time, he said something fascinating to me. I asked him, you know, what's the secret to his success? Something along those lines. I didn't want to ask cliche questions, and he quoted Lawrence Olivier, mm-hmm. and that threw me right off the bat. It's like who quotes Olivier? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, "Have the humility to prepare and the confidence to pull it off." Mm-hmm. And when you when you see something basic like that, and then you go behind the scenes and and see the extensive research that he does, you realize, and I've had the chance on two occasions to actually be in the booth during a complete broadcast. I didn't want to take that for for granted, but he did invite me. And what you realize is he would maybe use 1% of his research. He had everything ready to go. He was covered for every possible scenario. Mm -hmm. And then you realize he used it as a spice and not a crutch. Mm -hmm. And that was the secret right there. He was all ready to go but he wasn't going to show off the research. And I remember hearing the story about when he was going to do uh, football and they said, well, you're going to have John Madden as a, as a color commentator. Why would you hire Jack Faulkner, a coach on the Rams staff during the summertime to teach you about football? And he said, it's a lot easier to ask the question when you already know the answer. Mm. So when you're dealing with somebody like that, you know, and he's not going to tip off how much he knows because his job is to entertain you and to look at the, kid with the ice cream cone or the father walking along with with a couple of kids and he'd say now there's a pair of cufflinks things like that that's when you realize just how special he is
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. my first trip to dodger stadium was in the 70s and i can remember coming in from the downtown side and if you if you you first go to Dodger Stadium, you don't realize that it's, it's built into the hill. It's built into the ravine. And so you, you're not walking up to a stadium like you normally do, you know, like any other place. And I can remember walking in that from that angle and you're in the upper deck when you walk in. And the thing that struck me about it was, this is before the days of the internet, is when you walked in, everyone brought radios. And as you walked in the concourse of the of Dodger Stadium, you could hear Vin Scully's voice booming throughout the stadium from people's radios in their seats. It wasn't through the loudspeakers. It was actually
1: reverberating in the stands. Just imagine the perfect storm. You come to Los Angeles, you've got 78,000 on opening day, 78,000 fans, opening day 1958. And to have Vin Scully spreading the word, but also to be able to have transistor radios available, uh, that technology doesn't exist, you know, 10 years earlier at an affordable rate. So it was the absolute perfect vehicle for somebody visually, because remember in those days, the Dodgers didn't televise home games. uh, And they had occasional games from San Francisco, but there was no abundance of television in those days. So uh, just like Chick Hearn and the Lakers and the words I view, Vinny was the one that described the scene to everyone and made them want to come to the ballpark. But then everybody would say, sorta would say, are you going to believe your eyes? Are you going to believe what Scully tells you?
0: <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, the reason you and I know each other is we were introduced by Jim Governale, who is the producer of this podcast. And there is a fascinating story about Jimmy and his family that connected you two. Share that story with me.
1: Well, Jim Governale calls out of the blue and introduces himself, and I just love people like Jim, and I love their stories because usually when people call, they'll start off by saying, you know, you're not going to believe this, or I know this sounds crazy, but dot, 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 and usually those are the best stories, and that, and that's the best thing to happen because uh, Jim had this special recording uh, that was produced by his uncle, and his uncle would tape special games and everything like that. and you have to remember, back in the day, as famous as the Dodgers were as far as on the field and everything like that, they didn't archive the radio broadcast. And so it's like the stories you hear about uh, Johnny Carson, NBC taping over the old shows. Thank goodness Desi Arnaz did the three-camera system mm-hmm. and decided to put his film on videotape instead of kinescope. Mm-hmm. You know, something like that just wasn't normally done. And Jim says, hey, I've got the audio. the first of sandy colfax's no hitters and the amazing thing is you wouldn't even know that that exists because there's no copy nobody has ever heard it before and then at that point you know the magic of audio tape you're like okay now the drum roll this is probably old this is on reel to reel how is it going to turn out Mm -hmm. Uh, i can remember getting a reel to reel of don drysdale day 1969 just some Sort of random thing, and it's a beautiful John Ramsey recording for forty plus minutes with all the prizes and speeches and everything like that. And when Jim shared that, you just have your your jaw just drops because, as I said, with the photos, as far as going back to take them, you can't recreate it. That nobody ever knew that that existed. And Jim called, and to have that first of four no hitters, it, it was just an amazing, amazing story. But the very fact that Jim had it and the uncle, and that they saved it. And it wasn't just a random recording. This was the first no-hitter of arguably the greatest Dodger pitcher in history and one of the greatest lefties in history. And there it is in posterity. And back in the day, uh, for some reason, they did not save it. They saved Bill Singer, and by the time Colfax had his fourth no-hitter, which was a perfect game in '65. Vinnie called the studio and said, let's make a record. But he doesn't make that call in 1962. Nobody says, let's make a record. I think all they said was, let's see what happens.
0: Mm -hmm. That is amazing. Just a wonderful story.
1: I would imagine played umpire
0: Mel Steiner feels the tension and the responsibility. They're all well aware of what's at stake at the moment. Koufax said... And the pitch, fastball, a big bouncer down to Wills. He has it, goes to Burright, no hitter. All of the Dodgers are out to mob Colfax. halfway between third and home. Fairly with his arms around Sandy, pushing him towards the dugout. Other Dodgers leaping over the knot of players to just touch him. So now for baseball fans, is there a place, well, let's, let's assume that fans go back to the ballpark at some point, is there a place where uh, people can go and see examples of Dodger history that you're talking about?
1: Well, are you talking about audio or visual? Because there's so many forms of history. Right.
0: Well, what would you recommend for people if they go to Dodger Stadium and they wanted to see some of the Dodgers' incredible history? What would you recommend for them?
1: Well, first of all, the stadium itself, because when do you ever have a ballpark at two separate $100 million renovations? Mm -hmm. So when you stand at that top of the park and you realize, hey, I'm at the first privately financed stadium since Yankee Stadium, 1923. But you look at the architecture, you look at the fact, and you had alluded to it earlier in terms of you didn't have to walk up steps. They had multi-level parking. And you see the structure and you just realize what it meant to baseball in terms of this Taj Mahal and how it stood the test of time and then you look around and you realize that this is something that Colfax, Drysdale, Hershiser, Gibson, Garvey Lopes, Russell say all these great eras of Dodger baseball they've been in the same ballpark and the Dodgers have the highest cumulative attendance uh, for any professional sports team since 1901 so both Brooklyn and Los Angeles and first of all you have to look at the architecture but then You look around and it's like the old and the new because they have all the new amenities now and they added to the outfield experience and everything like that. But Janet Marie Smith, who is the vice president of stadium development, uh, who put together Camden Yards and put together uh, the seats on the Green Monster in Fenway Park, she's kind of like the ballpark whisperer in terms of taking all the local history. So when she comes to the Dodgers, she peppered me with so many historical questions And it was so great because she didn't have a preconceived notion of exactly what she wanted. She had an idea, but she wanted to conform it to the local history. And just imagine taking directional signs, and she took the original blueprints that Walter O'Malley had in his archive going back to 1962 and some of the other things that he didn't have time to complete. And Peter O'Malley still had all that stuff on file and for Janet Marie to be able to go through Walter O'Malley's old notes and drawings because there's so much attachment that local fans have to Dodger Stadium. So you can be nostalgic in very different places in the ballpark. So much of it still looks the same, but even though we have these state-of-the-art video school boards, fan casting wanted to make sure that they were the original shape uh, from back in 62. And that's the important thing. And it's funny because People still can remember where they were in the ballpark in certain moments. There's 56,000 seats. And if I go back to the field level, aisle 44, row M, seat number one, it's just kind of like a time warp for me because that was the first game I ever attended when I was seven years old. And I just remember the feeling. I don't remember the details, Dodgers, Montreal Expos, or anything Mm. like that. But I see this field. I see somebody in front of me writing little notes in the middle of a magazine. I later was told somebody is keeping score, whatever that means. And I see the food, the noise and the organ music and everything like that. I'm thinking, what is this place? And I think that's the important thing for people as far as Dodger Stadium means so many different things to different people. And there are enough old directional signs. If you go to the top of the park, you can see the plaque that they put up in 1962, the cornerstone plaque. You can see the plaque that they put up for Hank Aaron in the left field pavilion that they moved to the top of the ballpark. And, you know, one of, the, one of the great stories I can remember, Dick Walsh was the vice president of stadium operations. And during the McCourt years, he came back to the stadium for a tour. And most people look at the fields and things like that. He's looking at the joints, the pillars, the columns, the actual construction of the place. And he says, you know, half my life is poured into this place because of what he had done. And he's about 85 years old at that point. Back then we had a gift shop at the top of the park and a fan came out and saw dick walsh posing with that cornerstone and he was pointing to his name and he said is that you and it was this 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 20 something fan and this 80 something year old man and the fan stuck his hand out and shook his hand and said thank you for building such a great ballpark Mm -hmm. and dick walsh said that was his highlight just the random fan saying thank you so I think it's more the emotion in the ballpark. You can see the artifacts. You can see the old photos. You can see pictures from the 1955 reunion that was held uh, 50 years later, 2005 at the stadium. You can see replications of all these trophies and everything like that. But I think the most important thing is the feeling because that's something you can't recreate. Uh, The Dodger history goes back to the National League, back to 1890. And that's really the important thing as far as generations. So, uh, the artifacts that we have at the ballpark, the old photos, whether it's the bullpen cart frame, Vince Scully memorabilia and everything like that, um, you don't necessarily look at the memorabilia. It's what might trigger a memory. And you just sort of smile and go either I remember that or I have that or how cool is that? And that's the beauty. We want to put out as many things as we can, but we it to have different meanings to different people because we have so many different age groups and so many backgrounds of our fans.
0: Mark, I was actually at Vero Beach for the very last spring training game that Tommy Lasorda managed at Dodgertown. I can remember that the players lined up after the game and created a walkway for Tommy as they lifted their bats in tribute to his career with the Dodgers. So tell me, what was it like for you to be with Tommy Lasorda on a daily basis?
1: Well, I'll tell you, the year before, I had gotten a phone call and they said, we need you to get down to Florida because Tommy's assistant had taken a leave of absence and they needed somebody to drive him around. And it was the most amazing 28 days, 14 hours, 37 seconds of my life. <laughs> because I said, if I'm going to do this, I can't do any PR stuff. It's gotta be just Tommy 24 seven. That's the way it's gotta be. I can't try to do two different things because I know what's going to happen. And it was the most amazing thing because you see this man's energy. You see, he would have been like 80 back then born in 27. And this is uh, wow. 2007 2007. Yeah. And just, behind the scenes to see his amazing energy. And the thing that really helped me, we're sitting at breakfast and and it was like three different shows. He'd get there at seven in the morning and breakfast would last till 10. And he would just sit there and have three different waves of people come. He'd call people over to the booth and everything like that. And I kind of felt like Ed McMahon, as far as, you know, being his sidekick. Mm -hmm. And one time he said, you know, I'm trying to think of a guy that I helped beat curfew. I pulled him through a window And I said, who is it? And he said, you wouldn't know. He didn't play in the majors. And I said, well, give me some clues. And he said, well, he coached baseball at West Point. That didn't do me any good. He played football at Duke. That didn't do me any good. He was a punter. Still nothing. And finally, he said the magic word. He played in the Rose Bowl. And because I'm from Pasadena, because I love history, because we have the Rose Bowl, I knew that Duke had only been in one Rose Bowl, and that was 1939 against USC. They were undefeated, untied, and just this juggernaut team, and they have a 3-0 lead late in the fourth quarter, and with less than a minute to play, USC has a fourth-string quarterback named Doyle Nave, and he starts to play catch with a wide receiver named Al Kruger, but because he's from the Antelope Valley, they called him Antelope Al. Well, Four long passes later, the dream season's over, and USC wins in a shocking upset, 7-3. to three. I knew only one player on the Duke team, and it was like a needle in a haystack, and I took a shot because I'd heard the story of this coffin corner kicker that put SC in bad field position uh, the whole game. I said, are you talking about Eric Tipton? And all of a sudden, it was like the scales fell from Tommy's eyes, and he goes, how would you know that? How would you know that? Oh! And then suddenly, I was like his personal Google. Suddenly, I knew everything. And, you know, he, later he'd call from the road. His assistant would call from the road. if Tommy was in the middle of the story. Call Mark. Call Mark. And it was just the funniest thing because one little trivia thing like that. And then suddenly, we had a whole different re- relationship at the stadium. If he got old photos or had old books, we'd start to, you know, he'd do quizzes, you know, from the 1930s and 40s. Who's this? Who's that? Who's this? And it's just it was just unbelievable to think that what I had read as a kid, if you told me that Tommy and I would be doing that later in life, it, it just there's no way you'd believe it. And that's my most lasting memory as far as uh, driving Tommy around. But then once that Eric Tipped In moment we shared, suddenly it was totally different. And he would just get the biggest kick when I would pull some name out of a hat. And he's like, how do you know that? And the sad thing is I probably don't know, the first name of half my relatives. I know their last name, but, <laughs> you know, but I know about Eric Kipton. And so obviously I have my priorities in order. You
0: do indeed. One more question and I'll let you go. This has been such a fun conversation for me. Tell me about the uh, books that you've written. I believe you've written five uh, Dodger related books. Have you not?
1: Yeah, it's uh, five or six, depending on how you look at the byline. Uh, the first three, Arcadia Publishing, that's circa 2003, three, four, and five. And that was great because that type of format, you can look at all the archival photos. And the first was Dodger Stadium. The second was Los Angeles Dodgers. And the last one was Dodger Town. And I did not want them to be cliche shots. So there's tons of outtakes and, and just tons of unpublished photos so people can really get a behind the scenes. And then there's a uh, Game of My Life, Dodgers, 21 different stories. And the best thing about that is, they talk about their favorite games mm. and I didn't put them up to it as far as whatever they wanted to talk about, that was the important thing. Scully tells a wonderful story about his boyhood friend. They were in the Fordham Elementary School and wouldn't that be something if I was a broadcaster and you were a ball player, that type of thing. And you fast forward to 1952 and Vinny's elementary school classmate was a guy named Larry Megan. And Vinny only did one inning on the air in those days, wouldn't you know that the one inning that Vinny's on the air, Larry comes up to the plate and hits one of his two career home runs. and probably said it was the only time he ever called a home run through tears because it was just like the, the million-to-one shot that came in. Uh, two boys dreaming in an elementary school auditorium, and suddenly it had come true. But everybody had personal stories, and so Game of My Life, and then we did Dodgers Coast to Coast. That was a coffee table book. All about the franchise history. Uh, And so I've been able to work on a lot of different projects, uh, season ticket books on Dodger Stadium. I have a current project with Oral Hersheiser and Rick Honeycutt as far as the history of Dodger pitching, you know, in the last 50 years. And so it's always something. I'm very blessed because there's never a dull day, there's always something new. And for some reason, I've never had a bad day at the ballpark. (laughs) And I can honestly say, I can't use the w word as far as what's work like and everything like that i'll ask Mm -hmm. them i don't know you tell me what works Mm -hmm. like i get to go to the ball games i i'm at the ballpark I've, i've been interested in dodger baseball since i was seven i'm 55 years old and it's never lost me as far as the interest
0: well, you are a walking history book, and this has been so fun to listen to you tell these stories and, and reminisce a little bit about your love for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Mark Langel. thank you so much for sharing about your life at the ballpark.
1: Absolutely, John. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so
0: much. Life at the Ballpark is produced by Jim Governale. Project manager is Andrew Miller. Listen each week for a new episode. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. I'm John Frost, sharing stories of life at the ballpark.